the Forward Together podcast from Hollywood Trust with Paul Gosling and Jared Dean. Welcome to episode 10 of the Forward Together podcast. My name is Jared Dean and I'm joined by Paul Gosling. Hi, Jared. How's things, Paul? Yeah, fine. Good stuff. Right. Forward Together is a podcast produced by Hollywell Trust, and we're a community relations organisation based in Derry. Uh, we're delighted to have got support for this podcast through the media grant scheme of the Community Relations Council. And what we're doing is having a series of conversations, increasing the civic voice on key issues that we face here in Northern Ireland. So, Paul, this episode we have a conversation, or rather you have a conversation with Claire Bailey. Absolutely. And Claire is the leader of the Green Party. Mm-hmm. She took over a few months ago and she's an MLA in Belfast. And Claire has an interesting background and an interesting perspective as we were here for this interview. OK. And some of the main things then that she talks about, just to flag up a few points that people might want to listen out for. She talks about the fact that we've had a political process here at the cost of a peace process and that for 20 years things haven't changed it's like the social issues remain the social issues now that were the social issues 20 years ago absolutely and and claire again comes from a very personal perspective on this that mm. you know she was one of the first people to go to an uh to to go to an integrated school in northern ireland mm. and she's very committed to integrated education and and probably we hear the, the the arguments for integrated education more strongly from claire than most of the interviewees uh and perhaps that isn't the case that i expected uh, to, to, to have not been heard so much, and if you like. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so Claire's saying we, we need to do much more in terms of strengthening the connections within our society. Okay, and she also talks about the fact that the social issues are things are getting worse. Poverty's worse than it was. Suicide seems to be worse than it ever was. There still is intergenerational trauma. These are still big issues that need to be dealt with. Yeah, and, and this is a view which several people uh, have said in, in different ways, which is that, you know, this in, intergenerational issue is what, something we've not really properly tackled in Northern Ireland. You know, mm. the, 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 the class, the conditions into which you are born are typically the ones you stay in throughout your life within Northern Ireland, partly because of the school system. Yeah. Um, but also the, the trauma from the troubles seems to be passed down the generations. And we hear, heard that also with Francis Black in terms of the, you know, the issues around addiction and suicide. And clearly mm. these are issues which interviewees are saying to us need to be taken more seriously than they, they have been. Yeah. She goes on to talk about a United Ireland as a, or the, the conversation around that as a further example of binary politics, as she describes it. Absolutely. And, and this, uh, Claire's very strongly uh, of a view that we've settled into a society where you're either on one side or the other side mm. and there's not enough in between and there's not enough different perspectives and we actually need to have a, a richer society in which more views are heard and heard with respect. Mm. OK. She touches as well on the, the Citizens' Assembly model. Absolutely. And, and, you know, this again is one of the themes we hear across a number of the interviewees that actually... Citizens' assemblies have worked very well in the South. And actually, you know, given that we haven't got a civic forum in place, that we, we need to find ways to engage civic society. And citizens' assemblies do give us that opportunity. OK, well, let's hear from Claire now. I'm joined now by uh, Claire Bailey, who's the uh, MLA for South Belfast and also leader of the Green Party in the Assembly. Uh, Claire, thank you very much for doing this. Uh, How do we strengthen civil society in ways that enable us to make progress? Uh, You have to really go back then to 
we've had a process over the past 20 years and we've called it a peace process. Um, and we have to look at what has happened in those 20 years because I'm of the firm opinion that we've had a political process um, at the cost of a, of a peace process. So when we have to look at where has the, the benefits been in the past 20 years, certainly within working class um, or those most deprived areas in Northern Ireland and those communities, they certainly haven't seen a payoff. Um, and we, to try and get civil society to move and look at progress, you really have to start investing in where they are right now. Um, you have to make them feel that there is a focus and an investment in them and I'm not seeing very much of that going on. So I think we'll need to start looking at what's been the benefits and who has benefited over the past 20 years. So you, you, you would suggest that unless people see a benefit from the, the political progress process here, yep. that actually you won't get engagement in civil society? 100%. 100% and I can completely understand that. I mean, why are they going to buy into something that is giving them no return or the return is a negative one? Um, but I just think that's a no-brainer. We have more peace walls, for example, in Northern Ireland now than we did during the conflict. Um, our education system hasn't moved on. Back in 1981, I was one of the first 28 pupils to attend Leiden College when it first opened, and that was our first ever planned integrated school in Northern Ireland. Now, there were protests, uh, and at the door of the school, we were, you know, our buses were smashed, and we were identified by our, our uniforms. Um, but to me, I go back to that as well, because that was a bunch of parents and you know, concerned people who just came together themselves to set that up. And I think to this day, that has still been the biggest um, challenge to peace building in Northern Ireland. But yet here we are almost 38 years later with only 65 of our schools, um, both primary and post-primary, that are under the integrated banner. So there's a huge amount to be done in terms of trying to bring people together and trying to let them work together. Obviously, we can't knock down our housing stock, for example, and build all this new way of living. Um, but over the past 20 years, I've seen little attempt at integration. Um, I think that the investment in the political process has been a very burdensome, burden, burdensome one, sorry. Um, a lot of red tape, a lot of slow decision-making. Uh, the Assembly, when it was up and going, actually delivered very little. So while it provided a space and a place to have debates, the conversations, um, and build a political forum, much needed, I'm not critical of having that, I think that it hasn't gone hand-in-hand hand with true reconciliation and peace-building. But we don't want to just wait, do we, for nope. the politics and the economy to get better before we have a stronger civic society. So what do we do in the meantime? We start to refocus where our priorities are. We're sitting now two years with no government here in Northern Ireland, um, no assembly, no executive, um, and our budget's being squeezed. Um, well, for reform coming in, we have soaring levels of poverty. We have more people dying by suicide since the signing of the Good Friday Agreement than were ever killed in the, the Troubles. We have intergenerational trauma. We have, you know, everything, the, the, the social ills and the deprivation and the hardship is becoming so stark, so stark, I, I would argue that that's where we need to focus everything and all our time and attention. But I'm seeing instead a return of divisive political rhetoric coming out. So while we're facing Brexit, um, we have nobody at the table speaking for the people in Northern Ireland who voted to remain. Um, we have 10 DUP MPs who were anti-agreement in the first place. We have hardline Brexiteers who are 
pushing for a no-deal Brexit and openly admitting it. They've never even read the Good Friday Agreement. And we've been distracted by all this. And then the other narrative coming from the national side is pushing for a border poll. You know, and again, they're pushing for a border poll with absolutely no deal on the table. You know, and for the nationalist parties who whose raison d'etre has always been about a united Ireland to reach this point and still not be willing to put their ideas on the table of what that is, yet they're calling for other people to do that for them. So we're seeing this bipolar, this binary sense of identity politics taken over again. And when you transfer that down into the... the the grassroots onto the street level people are being pushed and they're being frightened and their backs are to the wall so I don't see how you can allow this political mess to keep dominating because that pushes people to the edge we are still a deeply traumatized society it doesn't take much to just scratch those open wounds and people are still living with that fear and it's getting worse because we're not dealing with it and that leads to that intergenerational trauma that I mentioned and these levels of systemic generational poverty, disillusionment, lack of hope, lack of educational achievement. You know, this if we want to provide the space to allow civic society to come together to start putting or even engaging in what progress looks like, then you have to make them feel secure. And what we have at the minute is a very insecure population, a very insecure and unstable political process, a serious lack of leadership in many quarters. Um, and people, when they're pushed to their limits, um, will go back and retreat into what they know. So until we address these issues, I don't see how we're going to get true and meaningful progress. We will simply replicate the, the, the identity discourse that we're also used to. But we have a void in the political institutions, which means that we need to hear a civic voice. So how can we get that civic voice out? How can it be structured? Well, I think if we look to to the, the, the model they use in the South uh, under the Constitutional um, Civic Assemblies, uh, that Citizens will, Assembly. Citizens Assembly, beg your pardon. Um, I think that's an excellent model to start engaging with. Um, I know that Stephen Agnew and before from our party has um, engaged and been part of that process and was seriously impressed at what he's seen. While we might think, and I've heard a lot of criticism about trying to apply that model here, um, but I think that that is the best way to go because uh, we need to break it down into small pockets where we can create safe spaces and all views and all experiences should be legitimate, considered and contemplated and allow people to just start that expression. And this is, again, go back to that lack of peace building. If we had been able to create those spaces and allow the development of understanding and networking, it doesn't even necessarily have to be friendship building, but to get to know who we are as a community, as a society, I think that is one of the best models that we could follow in trying to create that space. Now, as I understand it, the First Citizens Assembly in Northern Ireland is being created to look at social care. Is that the type of thing that we, you know, the type of topic that uh, should be considered by Citizens Assembly or should it be things that are much more at the heart of the, the, the conflict history of Northern Ireland? There's no reason we can't have both or all and wider. Uh, I think all these conversations need to be had. I think it's a bit naive to believe that general population don't have political views. While they might... I think still the majority don't vote, but that doesn't mean that they're not paying attention and that they don't have opinions that they would want to be put forward. So when we go into, if we want civic engagement to start tackling you know, issues of legacy or reconciliation or dealing with our past, 
that they're all very valid conversations we should have been having 20 years ago. You know, so how have we come from 20 years ago when the Good Friday Agreement was put together? It was put together by not political parties, but by wider civic society. So you had your politics there, you had the business leaders there, you had community involuntary sectors, trade unions, churches, everybody was at that table. And that's what created the deal. And we've come from that to 20 years later having a two-party stalemate that has brought the institutions down and created the mess that we're in. So I don't believe that politics ever, in my experience so far in Northern Ireland, has been able to lead the way. I think that they're followers. So if we can allow the space for wider civic society to come together, have those conversations, create some sort of understanding, just test out and engage with different ideas and come up with something at the end, um, that would be the biggest challenge to our political leaders in terms of having to step up and recognise that uh, they, haven't been, they haven't been doing their duty, perhaps, in many spaces and places. Now, the ultimate objective is to create a, a shared and integrated society. Mm. So is this a stepping stone towards that? I mean, how do we do that? Uh, we, first of all, we have to look at who we are as a society. We have to set up and acknowledge that we need to put mechanisms in there to have proper representation. For example, women are still largely ignored from many of our processes. We had our legacy consultation just before Christmas from NIO, and again, all the structures within there um, that we're talking about setting up or implementing or moving forward with are very, very prescriptive. They're not taking in gender balance. They're not taking in um, smaller minority communities. Um, you know, there's a whole raft of voices that are missing from that picture. And yet it is very, very top heavy with uh, political involvement, for example. You know, so I, I, I think that we need to, I'm maybe going to go off on a tangent here, but I see a, a very valid discussion needs to be had in terms of updating or moving or developing on from the Good Friday Agreement. It was never meant to be a forever process. It was a for now process, but yet we haven't evolved very much from there. Um, and again, goes back to that 20 years ago, everybody at the table, now we're stuck in this two-party stalemate. So the, the missing link there is civic society. So if we can bring, I've lost myself, but if we can bring everybody back, I think that there's a very strong case to be made for separating out the two. I think that the political process and the peace process have to be separate um, entities because what we have at the minute is the notion that our political institutions can be the the can be so involved in the the peace building mechanisms, um, for example, sitting on the boards and the historical um, inquiries team and the truth and reconciliation um, the oral histories that they can still have their their arm right in there um, I think that that needs to be removed and that has to be put firmly into the arena of civic society um, because this is a citizen's process this is for wider society and I think the political involvement is way too much so I see an opportunity to maybe roll out a full proper um, funded and resourced peace process and hand that to civic society to manage while we learn what it is to be responsible politicians and learn how to be um, how to do good governance but the civic forum has has ceased to exist that's presumably though a task too big for citizens assemblies and doesn't really bring together those elements of civic society so how would civic society be that alternative voice to the political process 
in the absence of the civic forum and being a step perhaps too far for citizens' assemblies? Well, I'm not claiming to have all the answers, but something like a proper civic um, involvement could be managed by an outsider. Um, I also look at what we've got now is is a very staid, if I could use that word, um, politics and political leadership. We know where they're coming from and they're not moving on. Um, and when it comes to election time, we just need to scratch the surface and get people out voting on identity. So while they can still do that, then something else has to happen in the background. So we need a dual process where wider civic society have that engagement and proper full engagement. And I believe that that can be managed by an outside independent arbitrator, for example. Um, we've always said from from the moment the institution was brought down in um, January 2017 that, you know, we're hearing rumours that it would be down for five years or it would be down for a long time at least and certainly until Brexit's sorted. Um, but there's no will from the British government to get any talks up and going. And then we had the general election and the UP conference and supply. So we know all these, the, the rehearsed sort of, reasons to how we are in the stalemate. Now, how can we allow this whole process then to be moved forward that, you know, when politics or pol political parties are ready to engage, that it's simply theirs to pick up and move on and they come up with a deal between themselves when they are the instigators of the crisis? So there has to be a forum for civic society to come in because there are other things that need to be dealt with and they keep getting pushed to the side for political agendas and while that's not on its own a bad thing I just don't see how our politics is going to come up with the solutions to the future and provide that progress when they're just oppositionally opposed to each other I mean they have a power share and executive so they're never going to meet in the middle so an, an outside body and a dual tandem process to allow civic society in and I think that gives a lot of duck and cover opportunity to political parties that get themselves into you know a deep trench in fact, it's like a new three-strand approach, which is that you have a citizens' assemblies to deal with the, the, the specific thorny difficulties. You have a political process which is arbitrated from an out, by an outsider, and you also have a civic process alongside the politi party political process, again arbitrated by an outsider. Is that that's roughly how you see it? I think it's a, a valid notion to explore. I absolutely do because you know the the the, the real problem is that we've never dealt with sectarianism. Um, and, and that is what keeps us apart. And until we can really dig into that one, we are going absolutely nowhere. So you have to start exploring possibilities of how we do that. And it's going to have to be with some very deep, deep digging. A lot of shovels are going to be needed there. This is just ingrained in everything about who we are. Um, so something has to give somewhere. And we have this deep-rooted, sectarianized society, which we have difficulty dealing with. And the attempts to create shared housing, shared education, the, the small size of the integrated education sector, they're not actually in themselves dealing with the underlying problems of separation, are they? No, no. But I do believe that integrated education goes far in dealing with that one. I mean, there's nothing will be a panacea, and I have to make that one clear. There is no one solution to any of this. So what you need is just at every layer, and whether that be through housing, education, healthcare, leisure, you know, new communities, all of this, you know, we need to come up with a framework of how to move forward based on 
a principle of dealing with sectarianism. And, and it's going to be, you know, it's going to be, I think, more than one generation. This is going to be a long-term thing to, to deal with because it is so ingrained. So we have to start investing in, in all those things. And it needs to come from an agreed position. And that will only happen when we acknowledge. And I don't think that we've even got to the acknowledgement part yet. And do we also need a new way of dealing with the past in order to deal with the present and the future? Dealing with the past is, is a very, very tough one. I think that the structures, institutions um, brought up or created with the Stormont House Agreement, um, are, there, there's a lot of very sound um, processes in there. Um, I don't think that they go far enough, but I'm not sure we will ever get something that will please everybody and give everything to all people, but we do need to start somewhere. Um, so while we have the, the, the whole legacy process written into that, I think that we do have the political will to start it. And this is, uh, again, a huge reason why we are where we are at the minute. Um, so I don't see, and, and, and it's exactly the same thing, I don't see how that can all be governed by political parties because a lot within it is completely against their ideological reason for being. So this is why I go back to we need to separate the two, where we need the Stormont House um, and the legacy institutions and processes allowed to be rolled out and dealt with and moved on but not by political parties and certainly not by politics um, because we are a very juvenile political system it's only been 20 years when you look at other established democracies around the world you know you have to acknowledge that we are very juvenile here so accountability responsibility and capability is something that we're still learning so i think that we should invest in our political institutions to show how to do all those things and how to be responsible, how to be open, how to be transparent and how to be representative while we allow the legacy um, institutions and the peace process to be ruled out elsewhere. But I don't think that you know the, the, the twain should meet um, and political parties or politicians or those involved in that are absolutely welcome to deal with all that there but as individuals because once you bring that um, possibility to grind it all to a halt by the political power you wield, then that's, again, not going to bring us very much further on. Do we have to deal, find a, an effective way of dealing with the past before we can achieve social reconciliation? Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly, because it comes down to the whole sectarian issue again. You know, we are so embedded um, that we don't see outside a sectarian lens. So when I speak to people who are very unfamiliar with the context of Northern Ireland or those nuances and how delicate the whole process is um, and then you start to unwind or maybe explain, explain and explore a bit more about social policy for example and a lot of the harms that's done or how much further behind other areas in the, the, the in Great Britain for example um, we are then they're very very shocked you know when we don't have we're hearing a lot about a rights-based agenda or about equality for all at the minute you know but where's that been for the past 20 years we have been conflict centered conflict led we have been led by our past which has stopped us being able to look to the future so we have a new generation coming up for example my children um, were born at the time that the, the Good Friday Agreement and ceasefires were being put in place. So they are that generation of 
what I would call a New Ireland, or the potential New Ireland, their experience of growing up and being here is not mine. And never should it have been. And that's what the whole process was about. So we need to find a way to allow this new generation, this new experience and this forward thinking um, to be at the centre of anything going forward. Because that should be what's leading us. rather than, you know, and, and it's that difference between allowing the past to dictate the future or do we allow the present to open our eyes to that one? Um, so there's a lot of delicacies in there. So in a lot of cases, we still have um, the same political discourse and rhetoric dominating, whether it be a new face on that, um, dominating what our politics is. Um, and while it's a very valid to be nationalist or unionist, I think that our, it, sectarianism has been written into the very heart of our institutions. So how can it be that Stormont here, when we're elected to the Assembly, I have to go and designate myself as either a nationalist or a unionist. And if I don't agree with either or don't identify as either, I'm automatically discounted as an other. What other? I designated myself as a feminist when I was first elected and the computer does not compute. So I am automatically an other. So therefore, my other vote in some Assembly debates is lesser than a nationalist or a unionist. And it's those types of um, machinations is what I mean by sectarianism being written into the heart of the institutions. So we have to deal with that as well. Um, how can that be fit for the future when we're still, all our institutions are embedded within a sectarian notion? And you said that your children happily have not had the same experience as you, yet this level of continued sectarianisation plus the latest research which shows that to an extent actually kids today are being more segregated than they might have been in the past rather than actually making progress. I mean, that's, that's pretty depressing really, isn't it? I think it's a shock and failure. Uh, who benefits to that? Uh, we have to go back to, again, ministerial decision-making. Um, so we are expecting civic society to have moved on, but yet not acknowledging the absolute failure of the political institution that's governing that. You know, So if our political institutions are founded on sectarian division, how are we expecting civic society to move on? And that leads us to the other question, which is how we have the constitutional conversation in this environment, in this context. I mean, what, how do you think we, we cope with it? How do we deal with it? The civic what, sorry? Civic, uh, the, the constitutional question, the yeah. future of where we are, who we align with. Well, this is a very interesting time to be in politics, just to be alive, I think. We're looking back in the history books at where we're sitting at the minute. Um, but yes, we're back to exactly where we were. We've never really moved on. So we're back into this constitutional notion of are we British, are we Irish? And it's that binary sense of who we are. So we've got Brexit has brought all this up. Um, what will we be at the other side of Brexit? Will we be stronger in the union or is Ireland going to be united? And again, it comes back to all my life I have been hearing these discussions. So post-Brexit, there is no plan. We went to a referendum um, led by hardline Brexiteers with no plan on the table. So when I hear about the, the, the conversations and the push for a border poll in Ireland, I'm just thinking Brexit part two, because there is no plan. And I think that that's a real failure from the nationalist politicians. So if this has been their raison d'etre, their whole reason for existing, where is their plan? 
You know, where is this socialist republic that I have heard about all my days? Because every economic model that I am seeing put forward for the case for reunification is built on the same neoliberal economic system. Um, we're being led into believing, do we go to, you know, is the North just going to be subsumed into the South? Sure. Is the North going to be subsumed into the South? Are we just going to be one Ireland under Leinster House? You know, these are not fit for purpose conversations. So if we want the United Ireland, we need to talk about transformation and we need to be in no doubt whatsoever that a new Ireland is coming and she's on her way and she's called climate chaos. So regardless, we've been given 12 years to the point of no return from the International Panel on Climate Change, where if we do not radically change our lifestyles, our behaviours, then the damage that will be done will be irreparable. So we are going to have to, we are going to be forced into renegotiating who we are on this island, how we get along, what our relationships are, but more importantly, how we do business together. Um, so that, that I am no doubt that a new Ireland is coming, but I don't believe that it's the one many people have been thinking of. And how do we have that conversation though? Well, I think that there are a lot of ways to introduce that. So for example, um, in terms of energy infrastructure, um, we need the all-island in, in interconnector grid up and going. Now, this has been ongoing conversations for such a long time, yet we have no solution. We still are talking about this. Um, so I think as climate chaos gathers momentum, as we begin to feel the impact of that more, that there is an opportunity there to be able to talk about this without it being an identity, an a, a old-school constitutional question. Because the future is coming and we have to engage with that one. So how do we feed ourselves? What is our agricultural output? What are our energy needs? We live on an island and it's quite a small island, you know, but we're surrounded by the Atlantic and Irish seas. We have an awful lot of wind. We have mountains. You know, the natural resource that we could be tapping into, um, not just to produce the energy that we need, but to produce jobs, to produce community wealth, to learn a new way of being um, I think that we can be world leaders in this if we can implement for example the Green New Deal we have you know a proud history of industrial heritage here Belfast was built on it and the shipyards and the industry there but we can use that infrastructure we can retrain we can engage we can create new jobs and there be long-term sustainable jobs investing in new energies and new um, industries and we can build ourselves, but we have to start looking at new economic models for that within community ownership, cooperatives, and small scale productions. And I think that there is a huge opportunity that we're going to miss in terms of having those conversations, showing people real possibility outside the uh, narrow nationalist unionist sense of being where people can um, thrive within that and it will be sustainable and fit for the future. So I think we need to focus on that and I think that that would be a great way of trying to introduce the possibility of looking to the future. So the constitutional discussion should focus not on identity but on environmental, social and economic concerns. That would be my dream. Thank you very much indeed, Claire. <laughs> okay, that was Claire Bailey there. Paul, anything else that you took from the conversation with Claire. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought that she, her point was very strongly made about the designation uh, at the Northern Ireland Assembly that she wanted to designate as a feminist. And, uh, you know, mm. she's told, well, you, you're either a nationalist, nationalist or a unionist. That's right, yeah. <laughs> but also, 
uh, her, her feeling is that the people who are not designated one thing or another, and of course that applies to the Alliance Party as well, uh, and people before profit, is that, uh, in her opinion, because they are not designated one thing or the other, their voice has less impact, their vote is of less importance because it's not stacking up the numbers on one side or the other. Uh, it's like the sectarian structure of the thing means that the voice isn't as valued, if you like. That's right. I, I have to say, actually, that's a point which I made to uh, to one of the architects of the Good Friday Agreement who who very strongly disagreed with that perspective. Okay. But, uh, yes. Okay, and as a, the Green Party representative... No surprise then that she'll that Claire also touched on climate chaos. Absolutely, yeah. And, and one of the things she's saying is, well, we need to talk about what type of society we want, not simply about, if you like, whether it's uh, orange or green, mm. but actually how it's structured, how we deal with the big challenges, how do we deal with the climate challenge, how do we create a more transformational social structure. Uh, you know, we need to have a reshaping of our society in which the constitutional issue is one part of a broader conversation. Okay. Well, that's it for our 10th Forward Together podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Thanks to Claire for taking the time to meet with us. Uh, keep an eye out for future episodes on hollywelltrust.com, sloggerotool.com, and refresh those feeds so that you get your podcast updated. Thanks. Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland supports this podcast through its media grant scheme and core funding programme.